Welcome to Bird's Eye View, the podcast that celebrates and discusses books, stories, writing and writers. I'm your host, Math Bird, writer and Welsh borderlands dweller. In each episode, I'll explore some of my books and stories, the books and stories I love to read, and the writers who write them, sharing my take on their themes, narratives, beginnings, endings, and everything else in between. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Bird's Eye View. As I record this episode, we're on the cusp of All Saints' Eve, commonly known as Halloween. So it seems appropriate to give this episode a supernatural theme. I'll be talking about my occult noir thriller, Witch's Cops, and share some insights. Then I'll give my take on Charles Dickens' classic ghost story, The Signalman, and how the narrator of this eerie tale can be viewed in a different light when we add a little bit more context. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you feel inclined, please rate and review. So let's begin. Witch's Cops was first published in 2022, and is the first part of the Witch's Cops trilogy, which includes the forthcoming Witch's Blooding and Witch's End. It's set in the UK in 1979, during the winter of discontent. For those of you unfamiliar with this time in British history, the winter of discontent was a phrase used to describe the period between November 1978 and February 1979. The Labour Party was in power, in constant battle with the trade unions. It was a time of civil unrest. Binbags lined the streets, as widespread strikes caused great public inconvenience. Sadly, some of those images bear a close resemblance to current times. Yet, in January 1979, to make matters worse, Severe snowstorms blighted the country as Britain endured its coldest winter for 16 years. The story begins in a dingy London bar where gun for hire Elizabeth May Dayton, a.k.a. Dates, sits out the cold, consoling herself with drink. Dates is a troubled soul, ostracised by her peers after a job goes awry and places a young girl in hospital. Dates is desperate to make amends. Then, unexpectedly, she's handed a note about a job, which, she believes, gives her that much-needed chance of redemption. She is summoned by renowned barrister Quentin Quimby. Quimby's bad reputation precedes him. He legally represents many of the dangerous villains in London. A man with connections, a libertine, a rumoured practitioner of the dark arts. A man of privilege and education. A man who believes people should know their place. A man whose foppish entitlement, set against Dates' council estate upbringing, displays all the ugliness of class distinction. There is no love lost between Dates and Quimby. But Dates needs this job. And as much as she hates Quimby's vile misogyny, it's a necessary evil she needs to put up with. Quimby employs her to travel to northeast Wales, to the small village of Escape. Once there, Dates is to meet up with a man called Eves and his partner Casey, and escort a friend of Quimby's back to London. A simple enough job, which Dates accepts without question, believing she finally has that chance of redemption. 
The Skaviog is a small village near my hometown in the parish of Flintshire, North Wales. The village dates as far back as 1086, and its name roughly translates as a place where the elder trees grow. These days, it's a peaceful village, but it has a long and fascinating past, and the small neighbouring town of Kerwis has a history of witchcraft and sorcery. When Dates arrives at the village pub where she's staying, she finds the landlord more than a little frosty. His mood grows more sombre when she tells him she's here to meet Sebastian Eves. The landlord is clearly unimpressed, and when asked where Eves is, he tells her he is at Witcher's Copse. Dates makes light of the name, but the landlord quickly reprimands her, warning her of the darkness that lurks in those woods, and how she shouldn't mock what she doesn't understand. Later that evening, Eves returns to the pub. Dates quickly introduces herself, informing him she's been sent by Quimby. Eves's attitude to women is just as vile as Quimby's, but Dates is a strong, independent woman and soon puts Eves and his partner Casey in their place. She quickly learns that the person she has to escort back to London is a teenage girl who has gone feral in the woods. On the surface, a simple enough task. Yet, Eves warns Dates not to be too hasty as capturing the girl is not as easy as it seems. Later that night, Dates is troubled by strange dreams. Their voices and riddles stay with her as they travel to Witch's Copse the following morning. They venture through the dark, eerie trees, taking shelter in an abandoned mock Roman pharos, whose interior stone is decorated with strange symbols and cryptic messages. The sound of gunshot cracks through the silence. And from that point on, things take a drastic turn for the worse. As Dates enters a world of occultists, fanatics, the Order of the Crescent Moon, and the legend of the witch, Helenora Hay. And that's where we have to leave it. But, if you want to know the whole story, why not seek out Witch's Cops? Available as an e-book, print and audiobook at all the usual places. If you love occult thrillers with a folkloric noir sensibility, Witch's Cops is the story for you. A tale that draws its influences from stories like The Wicker Man, The Witch and Rosemary's Baby. Interwoven with a riveting storyline, it explores the themes of class, patriarchal power and the subjugation of women, the occult and the indulgences of the wealthy. And amongst all this is one woman's fight for survival. What does fate have in store for Elizabeth May Dayton? And can this strong, virtuous young woman provide the last glimmer of hope among the darkness? And who is the enigmatic Helenora Hay? To whet your appetite, here's a sneak preview of the Witch's Cops audiobook. A letter dated 1683 smuggled out of Bruthin Jail in North Wales and the last recorded words of Helenora Hay. Dearly beloved Emmy, it is with crippled hands I write and blood runs from my fingernails. Though my body is pained and battered beyond its years, I would endure these tortures tenfold to have this letter be with you. For you are my rock, 
You are the solitary yellow flame in this world of darkness. Unrepentant, I come into jail. Unrepentant, have I been under torture. Unrepentant, I must die. Keep faith in me, dear daughter. Obey all my wishes, and our bond will travel beyond death. And once again, we will be reunited. But should this not come to pass, then know that my confession to them is only part of the story. And I disclose such secrets to you, so you may know all of it. My persecutors proclaim that a woman's weakness is carnal lust. Dearest daughter, you are too young to understand their words. But know this, the many desires of men lead to all sins. My father was a pious, God-fearing man, but behind the mask was a brute creation. My mother kept me safe from him, for his eyes never fixed on his wife, but often wandered across the body of his own daughter. It made me abjure his beliefs, forsake the holy Christian faith, and swear loyalty to the old ways. Now, dear child, I love you as deeply as my mother loved me, and I have taught and versed you in the ways of the cunning folk just as my mother had taught me. But thanks to my mother's schooling, I was blessed with greater fortune. When I was little older than yourself, I often played in heron copse, idling among the trees. It was there that I first met Bathin, great Duke of Hell, commander of thirty legions. He was strong and broad, riding a pale horse, his serpent tail slithering over the beast's flesh. He praised how I had denounced God and promised me power and life beyond my years if I adored forever to him and the devil. I was deeply troubled at first, until Bathin begged me not to be anxious. Then I yielded to his will, and after letting him guide me onto my knees, I kissed his posterior and attached a black candle to his tail, announcing my love and servitude entreating that he guide me to crush my enemies, be they beast, woman, or man. Dear daughter, I served Bathin well, travelled with him at night, and attended his nocturnal dances. And when asked to show the strength of my allegiance, I could not bring myself to sacrifice my beloved daughter. And when Bathin saw my sad plight, accepted my offering of your father. Now, dearest child, know that I was deeply troubled by this, and know that your father was a swillbelly like his father before him, a mullygrubs and idle Boraccio, who was only chirping merry when he was wasting our hard-earned coin in the alehouse. He neglected my father's land, and we would have grown destitute if left to the mercy of his vices and my duke's recompense benefited us both, as did his guidance that I should inherit what was my birthright. Now, my child, learn this 
and learn it well. Folk are weak, and though there is kindness in this world, there is more hate and jealousy. Malice that you are only spared if folk fear you. Folk are good when they can take what they need, but when denied their fill, the godly are quick to turn against you. I have known this all my life, and am not always taken heed of such wisdom. Malice is the enemy of complacency. My fate, dearest Emmy, is a testament to that. As is the spite of that wicked pickthank, Barbary Crags. Now, know this, dearest child. Weakness in others is also your enemy. I have learned this at my cost. Folk should know not to betray you for fear of the vilest reprisal. The sins and folly of weak men also harm you, as my fate attests from the treachery of that beard-splitter Rand. My wish is that I may speak these words to you. Do not fear, dearest daughter, though... By the time you read this letter, I am hung by the neck and my naked body cast into a crevice with the rats. We will be reunited. Do as I bid you. Take the fourth parchment from my hiding place and guide Mary Cowper to Helen Copse. Summon the great duke as I have shown you. And once poor Mary has willingly read the parchment aloud, the great Bathin himself will guide you, for he knows the virtues of herbs and precious stones, and makes the spirits of men and women possess the body of others. And afterwards, and forevermore, I will be with you. Dearest Emmy, this letter must remain secret, for those who have persecuted and tortured me will do the same unto you. And the thought of your suffering saddens me more than my own plight. Be strong, dearest daughter, for we will see each other beyond this darkness that lesser men believe to be light. I truly hope you enjoyed that sneak preview of Witch's Cops, and I hope it's got you intrigued. We move on to another eerie and unsettling tale now. Charles Dickens's classic short story, The Signalman. Many of you will be familiar with this story. But for those of you who aren't, here's a quick summary. Written in 1866, a railway signalman tells the story's unnamed narrator, of whom we'll be discussing in more detail shortly, about how he is haunted by a ghostly apparition. Every manifestation is followed by a devastating event on the railway line that the signalman tends to. Working in a deep cutting close to a tunnel entrance on an isolated railway segment, the signalman is responsible for regulating the flow of trains from his signal box. Alarms and telegraph messages from fellow signalmen inform him of any impending danger. Then, on three occasions, the bell sounds an unusual warning discernible only to him. Every warning is succeeded by the ghostly figure and followed by a horrific accident. Skeptical at first, the narrator tries to help the signalman to rationalise these events. Alas, 
it is to no avail, and the story draws to a chilling conclusion. I first became aware of Dickens's signalman when I saw Lawrence Gordon Clark's and Andrew Davis's adaptation in 1976, aired as part of the renowned BBC's Ghost Story for Christmas series. The haunted signalman is brilliantly portrayed by Denham Elliott, with the excellent Bernard Lloyd as the unnamed traveller, or the narrator in the short story. If you haven't as yet seen it, then I highly recommend it. For me, it has stood the test of time, and the ghostly apparition, as seen by the signalman, is truly haunting. One aspect of the story that has always intrigued me is the unnamed narrator. Who is he? Why is he there? Does he chance upon the signal box? Or is his visit an act of deliberation? I was ten years old when I first saw the signalman, and was so captured by it that I paid little notice to the unnamed traveller. I guess I just accepted his role to be that of a supporting player, a device Dickens used in order to tell his story. But as the years passed and I watched repeated episodes, I started to take more notice, especially when the unnamed traveller says, I have spent much of my life shut up in narrow limits. I've been confined, but now I am free. There is an eeriness to those words. What do they mean? Is he an escaped convict? A man recently released from the asylum? Every time I revisit the story, I often wondered what they meant. Believing that a writer of Dickens's skill would not have written them without deliberation. Perhaps they are used simply to invoke or stir our imagination. Or maybe they have more context and a specific meaning. Last year I started listening to the Ghost Story Book Club podcast. It's presented by writer Adam Robinson, where, in each episode, accompanied by a special guest, he takes an in-depth look at a classic ghost story. It's an excellent show, and if you're interested in discussing ghost stories and listening to their interpretations from contemporary horror and supernatural fiction writers, then I highly recommend it. One episode that caught my attention was when Adam, accompanied by his special guest, novelist Jane Ashworth, discussed the Sigloman. It's an interesting and entertaining episode where they share their take on the story. But also, more appropriately, they share my interest and questions around the unnamed narrator. Having picked my curiosity, I jumped over to a podcast to the curious, hosted by Will Ross and Mike Taylor, a podcast dedicated to the weird fiction of M.R. James. If like me, you're a huge fan of M.R. James's stories, then I urge you to check it out. Although focused primarily on the stories of M.R. James, they also feature other Jamesian-like tales and ghost stories. And the ghost stories admired by M.R. James, such as The Sigilman. And I was more than a little intrigued to hear their take on it. So, we learned from the podcast that The Sigilman was first published in Dickens's weekly magazine, All the Year Around and was part of a series of railway-themed stories collected under the title Mugby Junction. I'll just stop there for a minute. This bit of information really caught my attention. I'd always thought of the signalman as a standalone piece. So, for me, it shed the story in a whole new light to discover it was part of a collection. And what's more, most readers of Dickens's magazine would have read the earlier stories, and therefore, the signalman's unnamed narrator would have needed no introduction 
and would have been known to them. So, what were the stories of Mugby Junction? Well, it was an ensemble piece containing eight stories centered around the fictional Mugby Junction, based on, I believe, Rugby Junction. With the first four stories, including number one branch line, The Signalman, written by Charles Dickens, and the subsequent branch line stories, two to five, written by Andrew Halliday, Charles Collins, Esper Stretton, and Amelia B. Edwards. The first two stories of Mugby Junction are called Barbox Brothers and Barbox Brothers and Co. Dickens uses these stories to set the narrative for the third story, Mainline, The Boy at Mugby, and the following five branch line stories, starting with The Signalman. What we learn from the first two stories is a man originally referred to as Young Jackson has adopted the name of his previous employer, Barbox Brothers. Betrayed by his lover and a close friend, Barbox Brothers has devoted himself so intensely to his work that he's become one with the business. Yet, in a final act of rebellion, he liberates himself from the firm's grasp and ventures into the wider world. Reaching Mookby to switch trains, he changes his course and stands firm on the stormy, rain-soaked platform. Barbox Brothers might have distanced himself from his old world, but the life he missed out on still casts a shadow. Holding on to the name keeps him tethered to the past, even as he strives for a fresh start. At Mugby Junction, Barbox Brothers is unsure of the correct route to follow. Spending the night at an inn, his past haunts him, thoughts of his mother, his teacher, his boss, and the betrayals of his sole love and only true friend. Exploring the vast countryside, Barbox Brothers visits the town of Mugby. His routine strolls lead him to a train intersection, and later to the residence of a disabled girl called Phoebe and her father, referred to as Lamps. In search of his next adventure, Barbox Brothers ventures down each train line, and after each visit returns to Phoebe and her father and relates them an intriguing tale, one of which is the signalman. So there we have it. The traveller and the unnamed narrator in The Sickleman is a man who calls himself Barbuck's Brothers. And given what we know of him, we can shed more light on what he means when he describes himself as a man who has been shut up within narrow limits all his life and who, being at last set free, had a newly awakened interest in these great works. Whether The Sickleman is read as a standalone story or in the context of the stories featured in Mugby Junction, it still maintains its chilling atmosphere and prophetic eeriness. Much has been written about the story. Its contexts are widely explored, themes ranging from class, fate, responsibility, and industry's infringement upon nature. Whatever your take on it, I think it's a testament to Dickens's genius that the story prevails, and hopefully we'll be reading and discussing it for many years to come. So, that's it for this episode. I truly hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you're intrigued to find out more about Witch's Cops and Dickens's classic short story, The Signalman. Or, if you're already familiar with the story, why not reread it to see if your view of the narrative alters now you have more context around the unnamed narrator. Next time... I'll be talking about Welsh crime fiction. 
and with a selection of novels that explore different regions of Wales, including my own crime novel, Border Sands, and how it tries, in its own small way, to place and promote the region of North East Wales on the crime literary map. So, until then, take care and stay safe. Bird's Eye View of Books podcast was written and presented by me, Math Bird, and is a McSnowell Books production.